Oh, and sorry, um, just to make sure that I have your last name on it, last name correct. It's Branscom. Yep. Branscom. Exactly right. Okay. Yep. Great. Yeah, welcome to everyone joining the webinar. We will get started at the bottom of the hour. Oh, and thanks for being real flexible with um, with the time here. I know that you guys usually have them at a certain day and time. And I know yeah. you have us you have <laughs> us all out of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is our second to the last um, journal club, and we usually start at noon. So, yeah, you, yeah, but no, we're so happy that you can present. So the yeah. flexibility is it's good for us. Yeah. <laughs> Can't get stuck in a rut. We'll just give folks about one more minute if they're just now clicking their Zoom links to get in their seats and then we'll get started. Let's go ahead and get the webinar started. Uh, welcome to today's Journal Club webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us today uh, for this presentation uh, featuring research and an author uh, from the Journal of Nutrition, Education and Behavior. Uh, a little housekeeping for today. Uh, we do have slides for the presentation and I'm gonna drop those in the chat block uh, so you can download the handout uh, and follow along with the presentation. 
We will take questions at the end of the presentation. Uh, please type those in the question block uh, so we can moderate questions to our presenter. Uh, when I close the webinar today, there's a short survey. Appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future webinars. And then watch for the email follow-up. We should have that to you by Wednesday of this week. Um, and that follow-up email does come from Zoom. And that'll have a link to the recording, uh, the handout, as well as the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance today. Uh, if for some reason it gets to be Thursday or Friday and that uh, email hasn't reached you, um, just reach out and we're happy to forward that. I know um, sometimes those Zoom emails get stuck up in uh, people's <laughs> inboxes. Uh, so I'm happy to announce our uh, kind of guest moderator today, um, although um, Lexi and the Digital Technology Division was uh, heavily involved in the planning of this series. Um, so Lexi McMillan uh, Uribe is the chair of the Digital Technology Division this year, and she is also um, assistant professor of healthy living at the Institute for Advancing Health Through Agriculture at Texas A&M AgriLife Research, um, Texas A&M University System. So thanks to you for moderating today, Lexi. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much, Rachel. So um, I'm really excited to present today's um, today's speaker, um, who's Dr. Paul uh, Branscombe, and he's a professor of public health in the Department of Kinesiology, Nutrition, and Health at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Dr. Branscombe is a registered dietitian by initial training, earning his BS in human nutrition in 2005 and MS in nutrition in 2008 at The Ohio State University. He then earned his PhD in health promotion and education from the University of Cincinnati in 2011. He has been awarded the status of fellow from both the American Academy of Health Behavior and the Society for Behavioral Medicine. Dr. Ba Dr. Branscombe has published over 100 peer-reviewed journal articles, and his main research focus has been in the area of nutrition and childhood obesity prevention, specifically predicting the changing obesogenic health, health behaviors among children, parents, and young adults. So without further ado, um, Dr. Branscombe, um, please begin. Today, he will be presenting on how children search for health information online, a review and practical considerations. Thank you. All right, thank you for that introduction. Um, so next slide, please. So these are the, um, the nutrition, I'm sorry, one second. Yeah, some nutrition educator competencies that I identified for my presentation. Uh, next slide, please. And I have uh, no actual or potential conflict of interest. And actually, I'm going to stop my video right now. So, all right, well, thank you for that introduction. Um, I'm just going to start by telling a little bit about my background as well, just kind of reiterate. Um, as, as it was noted, my education started at Ohio State, and I knew very early I was interested in diet and nutrition. And so I quickly found the dietetics major and never looked back. Um, at Ohio State, I had my bachelor's and my master's and became a registered dietitian uh, during that time. Um, and during my master's degree, I really started to understand what I was passionate about. And so as many of you uh, probably you know, know, or at least the way I was taught, you know, dietetics is really broken down into those three major areas, clinical dietetics, food service management, and community nutrition. 
And I really kind of found that that community side of nutrition really fascinated me. And so during my master's degree, I kind of decided to get a PhD and continue my education on that path. And so I applied for a few PhD programs and ended up going to University of Cincinnati. But I had this interesting experience at University of South Florida. So at University of South Florida, uh, in their public health PhD program, they have this one-day interview process where they ask applicants to come in and you know, learn about the program. And we we're actually interviewed by potential faculty that we might work with. Um, so during my interview, I talked with Dr. Eric Buhai. At the time, he was a brand new assistant professor. Uh, and he, you know, gets me in his office and he says, okay, well, I see you're a dietitian and I see you study childhood obesity prevention. I don't do any of that. I study sexual health behaviors among young adults. Uh, so we have 20 minutes. What would you like to talk about? <laughs> and I kind of froze, right? Like, so I just kind of said, okay, well, could you tell me about the projects you have going on? Something like that. And he said, okay, well, well listen, I, I do have this one project where I have this program and it records what people do on the computer. Uh, and so they come in and we give them a list of questions to sort of find on the internet about you know, protecting their sexual health or just sexual health behaviors, things like myths they may have heard or just misinformation they have about sexual health. Um, and he said, you know, sexual health is the second most searched topic among young adults, but do you know what the most popular topic is? and it was weight management and weight loss. And so he said, while I don't really work in your area, you know, your topic area, I could see that there being an opportunity for collaboration, you know, if we were ever to, to work together. And so that, you know, really stuck with me for a number of years. Again, this happened in 2008. Um, and he was talking about research that at the time, you know, I had no clue about. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and think about where the internet was in 2008. Right. I, I know it's kind of hard to remember, um, but we were at this really interesting point where not everyone was still bought into this idea of the Internet to some degree. I mean, we I had some professors that didn't post any of their content online. Uh, you know, you had to go to the bookstore, the university bookstore and buy their course book. And that's how you survived in that class. And while I didn't go to University of South Florida, you know, I, I always kept this memory tucked in the back of my mind, knowing that I would come back to it someday. Um, I just thought, you know, let me get through my PhD, work with my advisor, and one day I can kind of pick this back up. Uh, so next slide. And so when I got my first job at University of Oklahoma, I kind of settled in and a student came to me and said, you know, I'm looking for an undergraduate honors project to work on. Do you have anything that I could help you with? And that I said, well, you know, I've got this idea I've been sitting on for years now. And to be honest, there is no guidebook for this kind of study. You know, if you were going to do an intervention study or a survey study, you know, there, there's a history of studies that came before, right, that you can kind of learn from, not repeat the mistakes that other have made, you know, set it up in some kind of systematic way. Uh, but at this time, you know, I had the one study that Dr. Buhai had published. And I basically said, you know, this is what we have. So if you can work kind of understanding that I may not have the answers to all your questions, uh, we can do this, this study. And so I worked with my student, Valerie, and you know, along the way, we learned so much about evaluating digital health literacy as a whole. And we found some really interesting results. You know, first off, the software that Dr. Buhai had used was called 
called Camtasia. And so we downloaded it and experimented with it. And, you know, at the time, I really didn't realize the kind of software that, I, that it really was. But it literally did record what someone was doing in real time. And so we would get a video back of their search strategy. Um, and, and the software would also do like voiceover, it would record their voiceover as they're going through. Um, so, so during that time, we, we did our best to encourage students to talk out loud their thought process, you know, what they were doing during their search. It helped give context about what they were doing on the screen, right? Um, but at the end of the day, we weren't really prepared for the amount of data that you get back, right? I mean, think about it. We, we recruited 30 undergrads um, because, again, at the time, we didn't have a lot to go off of of what a, an appropriate sample size would be for a project like this. Uh, next slide, please. We came up with these 11 scenarios for our participants to look up. And again, these were college students looking up weight loss, weight management type questions. Uh, but you can imagine how much data you get back when you do something like this. You know, on average, it took participants a little over 30 minutes to complete these 11 questions. And so that meant watching these videos over and over and over again, trying to make sense out of what was really important to report. Uh, next question, please. Or next question, next slide. <laughs> um, the obvious thing to report was whether or not they found the correct answer to the scenario, right? Um, and so you can see on the slide, most people could, and most people did find the correct answer. Um, we looked at the time it took per question. We thought that maybe that could have something to do with them finding the correct answer. Like maybe there was a point that they would maybe give up or, or like what characteristics of answers that they would come up with relatively fast. Uh, we thought the number of web pages they visited was important. Um, and, and that was at the time when Google was just starting to give those quick answers, right, to questions and the search results. Um, so in some cases, students wouldn't click on any web page, right? They would just sort of see the answer, the quick answer on top, and, and they would just report that as, as the answer. Next slide. And we tried to look at everything. I mean, really, we, we, we kind of brainstormed and we thought, okay, what about the percentage of searches uh, phrased as a question? Um, how about how many people used only one search to find their answer? Or how many people only went to one website? Um, or how many people only used one of the top three links, right? Like whether or not they were just kind of clicking on the first link or if it was, you know, they were going through the different links to kind of read and, and see where, where, where it was taking them. Um, or, or like what, what was the common domain? Like was it a .com or a .gov? Next slide, please. And on top of all of that, you know, so we were counting and tracking and, and everything. We also had that voiceover. And so we did an additional qualitative assessment to kind of find out what themes arose. Um, I think we found some pretty common themes. Uh, at the time, Google was really the dominant search tool, so pretty much everyone was using it. Um, and it was kind of new at that point that you had a search bar. And so remember in the past, um, and I say the past, like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I mean, I know that seems crazy, but <laughs> at that time, you know, you would have to literally go to google.com and then, you know, do your search. But now there was that bar, right, at the top um, of your browser. Um, and so 
that was new to us. We weren't really sure if maybe we had biased them by not changing that and sort of forcing them to go to some search engine because they would go and, and I guess by default, it was Google. Um, but we found other themes like website credibility, right? That's always interesting, what people think is credible or not. Um, especially now in the age of information we're in, uh, you could do a whole study about why people think things are credible and, and people have done those kind of studies. Um, the perceptions of what might be common sense stood out to me because it made me kind of think about what information people were coming to in this study. I mean, here it is, like we're in a university, right? And students have the ability to take like an intro to nutrition course. And so it made me kind of think, I wonder how many of these students had taken a formal nutrition course? Because a lot of this information that we were asking, you know, that we're covering um, would be covered in a nutrition class. And so maybe that's where they were getting some of this information. Uh, next slide, please. And so like all good studies, you know, we ended up with more questions uh, than answers almost. And it kind of set myself up for the next study in which we evaluated students who had taken a formal nutrition class and those who had not. Again, to kind of see if that class maybe made some kind of possible impact on their search strategy. And in this you know, second study we did, we, we definitely learned and used those lessons learned from that first study. So for example, we didn't know if students knew the answers to the questions that we had before we asked them. And so we did that. Uh, next slide, please. Here, for example, you can see, uh, like with question number two, how many calories are in one gram of carbs, fat, and protein, right? 12 students from the, our nutrition group answered this correctly before they had the internet, while no student from the non-nutrition group answered it correctly. Um, so we found that students that took a nutrition class definitely had greater baseline knowledge of nutrition before the internet activity. But the interesting thing was that the internet kind of turned into the great equalizer. And so almost no differences were found between these two groups when we gave them the internet to find the answers to all these questions. Um, they answered them correctly in about the same amount of time. Uh, they, they visited about the same amount of websites. So it was not exactly what we were expecting, right? It was but interesting nonetheless. You know, and at this point of doing this study, I kind of started thinking that maybe college students are just expert information seekers, right? Like ask them anything and they can probably like look up that information. <laughs> um, next slide. And, and so, okay, I don't wanna bore you too much about all of my journey here and doing all these types of studies, but Along the way, I also did do a systematic literature review on 11 articles that I could find using you know, some type of like video recording software. Um, but honestly, the evidence was really hard to put together because it was such a new thing at the time. There wasn't a lot of standardization. I don't think Camtasia was used very often. There, there were other methods people were using. Um, and I also had an international student who was interested in this method uh, who, who did a study with international students about just um, their health, and I thought that was really interesting. But I want to just take the beginning here to kind of paint this picture that the study that I'm going to talk about, it didn't just happen, right? That oftentimes out there, I, I kind of wonder, like, how did they get to that point? I mean, the study might seem so obvious or, or important, 
but I just like learning about things that kind of go beyond behind the scenes, right? Um, because I think it's important to always kind of note that research is a journey, right? That we all take. Um, next. next. Um, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, so this leads me to my uh, main study where I wanna talk about today, how children search for health information online, an observational study. Next slide. So in the United States, approximately 80 million adults have limited health literacy. Uh, having limited health literacy has been associated with a number of health inequities and disparities, such as poor engagement in healthcare services, uh, proper use of medications, uh, self-care for illnesses, and really just overall health status. When you think about health inequities and why they exist, many times I think we point to macro level determinants like socioeconomic status or race. But I think it's also important to understand that these determinants off, like what these determinants often foster. Um, and I think sometimes we don't appreciate that what accounts for many health, health behavior related conditions um, can largely be pointed to having limited health literacy. Uh, groups that are often identified as having limited health literacy include the elderly, uh, immigrant minority populations, low SES groups, and men as compared to women. However, children and adolescents are oftentimes not mentioned among these groups, which again, I, I find really interesting. Next slide. Health literacy related to finding, interpreting, and using health information on the internet is definitely a growing field in public health. Um, the internet is getting to the point where it's just part of our everyday lives. I mean, you look at this slide and you can see currently less than half of toddlers use the internet but two thirds of elementary children use the internet, 75% of pre-adolescent and 85% of adolescents use the internet. And, and to note, these numbers come from surveys pre-COVID. And so you can imagine how that kind of made things even you know, higher and, and what we were getting all you know, online, teaching moved to online. Information gathering, as we have been talking about so far, is one of the most used functions of the internet. Uh, which presents a challenge when individuals are not really equipped to navigate the breadth of information that's contained on the internet. I mean, consider this, in the year 2000, there were about 17 million websites that existed. In 2010, that increased to 200 million websites. And today, there are 1.5 trillion websites. <laughs> and so, you know, as I've been talking about this, this innovative approach towards evaluating this form of digital health literacy that is finding, reading, and interpreting health information is using these computer software programs to really record a user search strategy in real time so we can show the pitfalls of how people might fail to find accurate and credible info uh, online and can also provide us information about what makes a website accessible. And so, also, to, to reiterate a point that I found from my systematic review that I, that I did, you know, I, I found 11 studies. Um, of those, five used college populations, three focused on healthy adults, one on adolescents, one on adults with low literacy, and one on adults with chronic conditions. And so notably missing was children. And so therefore the purpose of this study that I'm gonna talk about is to evaluate whether children could find correct answers 
to these obesity-related health questions on the internet and observe their strategies when you know, they're, they're searching for such information. Next slide. So we recruited parent-child dyads at a summer camp in Oklahoma to complete this study. Uh, one parent per household was allowed to participate. Health literacy skills of parents were evaluated using this health literacy skills instrument. Um, and digital health literacy skills were evaluated with children by having them search for six nutrition and physical activity related questions. And I'll talk about here in a second. Parents received 40, a $40 gift card for, for participating and children received like a small toy. Uh, with regards to the parents, they completed this previously validated instrument, the HLSI. It's a 25 item instrument designed to evaluate print, oral and internet literacy, as well as numeracy. <clears throat> it's a really interesting evaluation because it's skills-based in the sense that they would have to like read something, like maybe directions to, to something and answer questions based on that information that they were given. So for example, one set of questions I found interesting was um, they had to listen to a recording of a message that they would hear on like an answering machine, something that you might get from like the hospital. And it would give the parent, you know, some kind of information to remember, and then they would have to answer questions about that information. Um, so for in the survey, uh, they would get one point for a correct response and scores were evaluated as, as either proficient, basic, or below basic. Next slide. To evaluate the children's online search, a detailed protocol was developed and followed to, to make sure we had consistency. Uh, before each session, the search history of the computer was erased. So what the last child did didn't somehow populate or bias uh, what the child was doing in that, in that particular session. Uh, before we did the study, our procedures were pilot tested with four children, um, and there were definitely some things that we learned during the pilot test we did. And so, again, if you ever do a study like this, I would highly recommend that you take the time to pilot your methods out. I mean, I know sitting here, it seems like a no-brainer, but you'd be surprised at how many people I talk to that you know really don't take this seriously and just want to dive in. And the number one thing we learned from this pilot was that children need a lot more, needed a lot more prompting than we originally thought. You know, when we did this with college students, we would ask them a question and they would just dive right in. Like they knew exactly what to do. But now we were working with children between the ages of nine and 11 and we sat down with them, you know, the first few kids and we'd ask them a question. They, they would literally just kind of look at us and be like, okay, I don't know. <laughs> and, and so we had to kind of coach them more than I thought. Um, and so one of the things that we learned and one of the things we decided to do was implement this little familiarization activity with the kids, just to make sure that they knew how to use the computer, which was a 15 inch MacBook, and to understand like really what we were asking them to do, right? And so we asked them, do you know who the 20th president of the United States is? And of course, no child really knew the answer. And so the interviewer would then demonstrate, say, okay, well, you know, if I was going to use the internet and I was going to search for this, this is how I might do it. And I would talk out loud this way um, to kind of, again, show what I'm doing, to kind of do, do, practice this talk out loud method. And so it helped the child because it, get them, it got them 
familiar with what we were kind of asking them to do and demonstrating. And then we would have them demonstrate back. And so we would ask them, okay, well, now that we've done that, do you know who the 40th president of the United States is? And of course they didn't and say, oh, well, can you show me the same way that I just showed you? And so, again, that was just something we learned and something that really was useful at the end of the day, because if we didn't do that, we probably would have got um, almost no, you know, talk out loud, no kind of thought process. And I know it sounds like a lot, right? But like I said, it, it really helped. And so listed on this slide are six questions that we read to them um, and had them answer. Questions were evaluated by a, a panel of, um, of six experts for face and content validity before we did the study. There were two types of questions. So the child had to find an answer to like a specific question, like can you use the internet to find how much sugar is in a can of Dr. Pepper? Or we asked them like an open-ended question, like can you use the internet to find all the reasons we should be eating healthy foods? Each question um, was asked without using the internet to kind of establish a baseline level of knowledge about the things we've talked about. Uh, and then regardless of their answer, children were asked to find the information on the internet. And so we didn't tell them whether or not they were correct or incorrect when we initially asked them. We just want to kind of keep them going just so they didn't bias their search results. Next slide. Both quantitative and qualitative data were extracted from the recordings. Qualitative data were from the, was from the audio part, and that audio part was transcribed verbatim. Uh, content analysis was done by me and the other author of this study to reveal the reoccurring themes. Um, to kind of start, we both sat down and we watched the first recording together. Um, and really that was done to establish the baseline themes, to uh, write out an initial code book. Um, so we sort of understood like what, you know, how to identify the themes um, in different ways. Um, and then also how to identify new themes. Like if we're seeing things, how do you do that? How do you define it and, and code it that way? Um, and then we, we coded them uh, independently of one another. Initially, when we got back together after that, we agreed on five of the six, but after sort of discussing um, all of the themes, the sixth theme, we decided that there was six themes present. And so talk about that in the results section. And as far as the quantitative data uh, that we extracted, it included many things that are present from basic information, like how much time it took them to find the answer, uh, to other things like the number of words typed per search. Next slide. So like I said, overall, there are 25 parent-child dyads that completed the study. 84% of the parents were women, 72% were married, uh, and 80% were white or Caucasian. The average age of the parent was about 41 years old, and on average, parents had about two children. Uh, shouldn't be a surprise that 92% of them, of the parents, reported that uh, internet was available at home on either a computer, smartphone, or some kind of electronic device. And 84% reported that they spent on average about four hours per day on the internet and access the internet every day. Was health something that parents uh, search for on a regular basis? Yes, a total of 84% of parents reported that they use the internet to find health information. And 44% reported doing so every day or at least a few times per week. Um, and, and remember, I, I said we evaluated parents' health literacy. 
we found that they actually had pretty good health, health literacy levels. The average score was 20.8, and that was out of 25. And uh, 14 parents had proficient health literacy, which again was the highest group, whereas 11 parents had the basic level and, and no parent had below basic. Next, next slide, please. 68% of, of the children were white or Caucasian and 56% were boys. Children were between the ages of nine and 11. Parents were asked to estimate how much time children spent on the internet at home and at school. And so on average, they reported that children were on the internet at home a little over four days per week, uh, but they also reported being on the internet at school for about three days per week, um, averaging about an hour per day. Next, next slide. Questions were marked as either correct or incorrect, but if a question had like more than one part, each part had to be correct um, for them to get their one point basically. Um, the average time children took to complete these six questions was a little over 20 minutes. Um, on average, children took about four minutes you know, per question and visited about one website per search and only did about 1.9 mouse clicks. And so there wasn't you know, a lot of activity going on and, and we'll talk about that here in a second. In the first question, children were asked the number uh, to, they were asked the number and names of the food groups. Uh, only one child answered it correctly before searching online. Uh, others provided guesses. The most common guesses were like the vegetable group, fruit group, dairy group. And then the second question, children were asked how much of each food group they should eat each day. None of the children answered that correctly before searching online. After searching, three children were able to, to get the first question correct, but no child was able to answer the second question correct. Uh, but I should say nine children did receive an incorrect score for the first question by stating that there was a meat group instead of a protein group and a milk group instead of a dairy group. And so we would have had more that got the first question right, but since the names did change, we wanted to just keep that consistent. Um, and, and so that's something we reported in the paper. Uh, next, next, uh, next slide. The third question we asked children was about how much sugar is in a can of Dr. Pepper. Does anybody know this? Know this off the top of your head? <laughs> It's 40 grams of sugar in a 12 ounce can. No child was able to answer this before using the internet, although their guesses were everywhere from 20 grams to 64 grams. Um, but after searching, five children answered this correctly. So five out of the 25. Uh, next question, or next, next slide. <laughs> um, for the fourth question, children were asked how much physical activity they should have each day and the correct answer being 60 minutes per day. This was interesting that 17 children answered it correctly before searching, but then after searching, only 14 children had the correct answer. So in this case, it's almost like the internet confused them, right? We had less get it right after using the internet. Next slide. For the fifth and sixth question, children were asked to name the benefits of being physically active or eating a healthy diet. For eating a healthy diet, the average number of reasons children gave was about two and a half. 
Um, and you can see here on this slide what the most common reasons were. And then after searching the internet, that number increased to 3.6. So they were only able to come up really with one additional reason. Um, and you can kind of see what some of those were here on, on, these, on this slide, what the additional reasons were. Next slide. For being physically active, the average number of reasons children gave before using the internet was about 1.8. And again, you can see on the slide what those were. Um, here though, it, it jumped quite a bit, right? So after searching online, the average number increased to five and a half. Um, and again, slide, you can see what those additional reasons were. Next slide. As far as the qualitative themes, we had six that I talked about. The first theme is that was that children use the autocorrect or autofill or did you mean features quite a bit. These features were used in about 75% of all of the searches. And children reported that they were very helpful for them searching. For example, one child uh, for one question said, I clicked why we should I clicked why we should eat healthy because I was going to take me a really long time for me to type every single thing out. And I'm a, not a fast typer. And just as a quick aside, that, that was another thing that was really interesting to us that sort of the other side of this theme is that when you give children questions, they literally want to type out the entire question. You know, whereas college students are a little bit more savvy, right? In those studies, they would read a question, but they would, again, be able to pick out what the key words for that search and make their search much more efficient, right? Kids would literally start typing out the entire question. And then, you know, because of the way the internet works, the, uh, the search bar would, would auto-populate what it, would, what it thought they were trying to, to say. And oftentimes they would just get through the first few words and then they'd start clicking on some kind of um, you know, computer-generated response. So that, that was really kind of an interesting thing we, we weren't quite prepared for. Uh, theme two, that the search was typically limited to the first result or the result snippets were used. Children really liked these, these boxes that came up. You know, one child said, I just searched the question and it was there. It was one, just some answer, like in a box. <laughs> um, it's just in the center of the internet. I just read it first, right? And so really kind of interesting that, again, they're looking at these snippets, not knowing where they're coming from, right? They just sort of take it on face value. Next slide. Theme three was web page titles and the layout really impacted their information seeking. Um, children first looked at the titles when searching for this information on the web. And one child said, oh yeah, it says top 10. Uh, but then I didn't wanna have to read the whole five paragraphs. But again, I'll give you a little bit of context what they're talking about. This was just so interesting that, again, we asked these questions about, you know, what are the reasons we should be active? Why should we eat a healthy diet? You do this and you search it, and almost always you get websites. You know, the top 10 reasons to be physically active. Kids would, would click on these websites, but then they would look at the information and just not be able to really interpret it, right? They could, they could see it. It'd be right in front of them, top 10 reasons, but they just couldn't make that connection. You know, they, it would be really intimidating to them, and they would give up after, you know, just a few things saying. So really an interesting theme. Uh, theme four, 
familiarity with websites. Uh, children typically chose sources of information that they're just familiar with, almost like confirmation bias in a way. Uh, one child talked about, you know, my plate being something that they wanted to go to because their PE teacher went to it. Uh, next slide. Uh, theme five, using Google images. Again, something we weren't, we didn't see with college students, but children use these Google images to find answers to their questions. Um, you know, like children were familiar with food diagrams. Um, this was just demonstrated by them clicking on the images tab rather than going to a web page. Um, again, interesting because college students, I don't think ever did it or just very rarely would um, be looking for information, but then just go straight to an image versus a web page. Um, and then the last theme, difficulty in finding answers. Children reported, you know, difficulty when searching. One said, you know, I, I really can't just, I really can't figure out what I'm doing here. Another child said, I don't know, I can't find it. Um, which again, is just different because college students never really express too much difficulty in finding um, information. And like I said, maybe, maybe college students are just expert information gatherers. All right, next slide. So the results, the results from the study really kind of show that children overall were not very successful in finding information on you know, recommendations and guidelines that, that the government sets. You know, one search pattern uh, observed was that children's, was children's inability to differentiate between health recommendation guidelines of adults and for children. Uh, this was observed most prominently with that question about physical activity, right? 17 children answered it correctly before searching. However, based on information they found for adult recommendations, eight children changed their answers to an incorrect one. So if children fail to find recommendations tailored to their own needs uh, and base, base their needs off of recommendations for adults, it really could lead them to having a greater predisposition towards obesity, right? Because that means less physical activity and, and eating more. So this points to a vulnerability children have towards accepting incorrect information, uh, even when having pre-existing knowledge about a certain topic. Another observed search pattern was the unawareness of the portion size concepts, right? When asked about um, the sugar in, the, in that soft drink, eight children gave incorrect answers because the website they visited gave them information on a different portion size container. However, you know, when you, when you look at it, all of the participants when presented with the information were able to correctly identify grams of sugar on the food label. Um, so, I think we can call kind of empathize that these increase in portion sizes that we've been seeing last decades has really had an impact on obesity of children and adults. And while they can read information, it's putting it in context of portion size, they really kind of lost that. And then the final observed search pattern was that children's sort of lack of concern about credibility, right, of the sites that they were visiting. Uh, children visited sites they believed had correct information, um, but a common tool was really just that result snippet that could have been anything. Um, the most common domains that they visited were .coms and .orgs, whereas um, like government websites like .govs or educational.edu's, those kind of websites were rarely visited. Um, so this approach led some children, again, to using uh, unreliable or inaccurate information. Next slide. 
This study contained a few notable limitations that I should address. You know, first, even though children were prompted to use the talk out loud method, many just had difficulties with it. It's just difficult to do qualitative research uh, with kids and get them to talk about, you know, their feelings or, or their strategies while they're in real time. Uh, when children, so in addition, when children were unable to find the answers, sometimes it was unclear whether the reason was a lack of interest or motivation or a lack of ability. Uh, because, you know, some, sometimes they would just give up and you, you just weren't really sure, right? Um, another limitation was the small sample that we used. Um, parents' income levels were not evaluated. And, and that has been associated with, with health literacy in the past. And so we, we that was an oversight on our part. And then um, just the generalization of these results are, are limited because the children in the study were from a, a Southwest region of the United States. But based on the results of the study, I think a number of digital health literacy skills need to be targeted for children. You know? As we've been talking about, you know, first, children need instructions on how to find reputable websites. And so this training can include knowing the difference between domains, right, with specific government websites that we can highlight to kind of show th this might be something you, you try to visit first when getting this kind of information. Uh, another factor related to website credibility is those result snippets. So children need to be trained to kind of understand that what these boxes are even though they give you quick information, they may not be coming from reputable websites. Children need, also need to understand um, that recommendations can be tailored for children, but they're also separate from adults. Um, and then children need to be trained to kind of understand portion sizes, right? And then finally, children need to be just encouraged not to give up. And like I said, this whole idea that we weren't sure um, it definitely came off that sometimes it was due to a lack of motivation. And so definitely telling kids, hey, don't give up. If you can't find it at first, you can visit other websites, it's okay. Um, and that that information is oftentimes out there. Uh, next slide. And so again, I just wanna kind of stick this here. These are the studies that I published along the way, starting with that first one in 2015 and up until the most recent one with the children that I presented here today. Um, so if you're interested in this method, please check these out or you can always contact me and we can talk about it. Next slide. And just to kind of wrap things up, just a big thank you to all of the students that I've worked with along the way that have watched these videos over and over and, you know, thought about all the things that we can collect and it's very tedious work, uh, but Valerie was part of the first study and, and then Logan was part of the second one. And then Natalie here at Miami actually was part of the last study. And so I'll go ahead and end things there and field any questions people might have. Thank you, Dr. Branscombe, for such an interesting um, uh, presentation. And also thank you for kind of guiding us through your process and uh, giving us a lot of detailed information about the method that you use. I think that was really interesting. So we do have a lot of questions coming in. Um, the first is about referring to the soda question. Um, did you have any idea what a gram, did they have any idea what a gram was, for example? So in reference to how much sugar there was, was there 
yeah did they were they able to conceptualize what a gram of sh- was yeah good question i think that's a great question um you know so i so these kids they're part of an after school program um initially so the way that this summer camp was set up is it's through in norman oklahoma all of the schools use one provider one nonprofit provider for their after school program and then it kind of shrinks down uh, for their summer program and so the the summer program oh i'm sorry my video <laughs> yeah um and so the summer program is kind of a shrunken down version of the after school program and during that after school program they do um, a nutrition and a physical activity program it's, it's especially physical activity that's part of it and so i think the kids really they understand food labels they understood food labels and they understand um you know, the things that are on a food label, like, you know, grams of something or, or how many calories, but can they conceptualize like, okay, if something has 40 grams of sugar, what does that mean? Right? Like, is that a lot of sugar? Is that a little bit of sugar? And that's, that's really hard to know. We didn't ask them that. Um, but I think that's something that I've actually heard other researchers kind of look at, especially along the lines of like calories, right? Like if we teach people about counting calories, or if we say, you know, this soda has 200 calories, people, like, what are they supposed to do with that information if, if there's no real something to connect it to? And so I know this one researcher at, at an SBM conference, he talked about relating calories to, like, um, minutes that you walk. And so at this store they had set up, instead of putting calories with, like, muffins and, you know, the pastries and stuff, it was like a coffee shop. He put how many how many minutes would you have to or, or how many steps how many steps would you have to walk to burn this thing off you know this this cupcake or whatever and I think that really helped people conceptualize oh okay that this is you know how energy dense basically this this thing is um, so it's a good question not really sure how how well they conceptualize that but yeah it'd be good for kind of looking at in the future. All right. The next question is, um, oh, someone's just wondering about the erroneous answers that you received um, in response to the physical activity question after they had searched for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they can come up with all kinds of stuff, right? <laughs> um, we we tried not, we always tried to be um, non-biasing. And so if they were coming up with erroneous stuff, we would just try to kind of nod and we, we didn't give it value. We didn't say like, you know, oh, that's not really correct or um, something like that. So yeah, we didn't really track track it that way um, to, to kind of know like how many, how many things did they say that were not actually true. Okay. All right. Um, and um, about teaching kids how to use the internet, do you have any, do you know um, if and when they teach elementary school kids how to use the internet? Yeah, it's a good question. It seems like the answer is always changing, right? Like, in in the you think about the time frame. You know, I, I started learning about this method in 2008, up until we did the final study, um, and, and it just seems to change. I mean, probably at that time, children were using it. Definitely, they were they were using it in elementary school. Um, whether or not for what purpose, I don't know. So, like, so kids definitely use the internet for entertainment purposes very early on in their lives. Um, at what point do children, do, do teachers 
start asking them to generate, you know, find information on the internet to, to do assignments in their, in their courses. That's something that I'd really like to look up. I, I don't have the answer to, but my guess is every year that, that probably just keeps going back and back, you know, from sixth grade to fifth, from fifth grade to fourth. So it'd be really interesting to find like at what age and maybe different by school district, but um, it'd be really interesting to know that. The next is um, more of a comment, but actually something that um, I was thinking about too. Um, the person asks if um, it or comments that it would be interesting to do similar studies about how kids deal with health info uh, delivered on videos on YouTube. I was especially wondering about TikTok, um, and I've heard that younger people use it um, as a search engine at times too. So I wonder what the study would have looked like if it was done on a, a mobile phone, or like a yeah phone versus yeah. Um, a computer. Yeah, no, that, so the mobile phone thing, that was something that I really wanted to do sort of like after these first two initial studies I did with college students. And I never could find a way to record. Like I never really thought through how could we do it? Right. Like, and I thought, did we want to have our own devices um, where we, you know, cause we would need the recording software to, to, to look at what their searching was. Um, and so I thought, well, should we have our own set of phones that we give them to search for information or should we just kind of keep it where they're, you know, in the real world, they're using their phone to look up health, health information, let them use their own phone. But we never, we never really could figure out like, what is the way to get that search strategy, right? That, that recording. Um, and at that time, I don't think anything was available. There might be things available today that you could record and somehow get that sent to you. Um, but, you know, if you're working with their phone to say, hey, will you download this app that records, you know, <laughs> what you're doing? That might be tough. So doing it on your smartphone, to me, that was always like, that's the next thing. Like, if you want to know how people search for health information, it really probably is their phone more than sitting down at a, at a computer and searching. Mm -hmm. But the other thing you talked about was rather than just going to websites, could they be doing other things? So with the kids, we did find that they were going like Google images, right? And that's, so that's kind of like the beginnings, I think of that. I remember when we did the study with the international students that I talked about, international students were actually doing that. They were going to YouTube and they were watching videos once in a while about, you know, what it was, it's something that maybe they didn't understand. Um, obviously in this study, they weren't linked into any of their social media accounts and these were kids anyway, but definitely, you know, now that, now that my initial study is 10 years old um, and all the things that's changed, especially with social media in those 10 years, I, I think replicating this kind of study, these kind of studies today to kind of understand in the real world, how they're, you know, searching. I think that could be really interesting because like I said, if they come in and they're using sort of like my computer that I've set up for research purposes, they're probably not going to log into their social media accounts like TikTok and all these things to search, right? They're probably just going to do it the more traditional finding, you know, through Google. Um, so yeah, if anyone has ideas on how to do that, that's, <laughs> I think that that really could be like the next big thing on, on search, you know, and really how to, how to capture what people are doing. And maybe, maybe one of the things is scaling down how many questions. I think sometimes we just were a little over ambitious. You can see from my first study, we had like 11 questions we were asking. And by the time with the kids, we, we tried to whittle it down to the least amount of questions. And so we kind of settled at six. So. 
Um, and the next question um, is about the content. Um, have um, so uh, it seemed like there was a lot of focus on portion sizes, and um, this um, audience member was wondering about portion sizes versus using the response Ellen Satter's division of responsibility and the responsive feeding more than intuitive eating approach. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, definitely. So, so kind of from my last comment, we were trying to strip it down to kind of like what, what's the most basic information that we, that we think is important. Right. And so it was things like, what are the food groups and how much of the food groups should we think about eating per day? Um, but I, I think after this study, you can kind of get into those kind of more kind of narrow focused um, areas to kind of see what kids think. Um, the intuitive eating is, is something that I think is very, very um, important uh, to get kids to kind of understand. Um, trying to think about what would, what would you have them search for on the internet about that? I don't know, that, that'd be kind of an interesting discovery process, I think. But, um, but definitely, I think our, our intent was to try to do some baseline knowledge and then kind of see where that might take us about what's sort of the next thing, right? Yeah, very interesting. And um, well, it looks like those are our questions from our audience, but I can't help myself. I have a couple of yeah. questions too. Um, so I was wondering about um, parental involvement when it came to these searches or just like in general, how, like if kids are searching on the internet, how much are they asking their parents or someone older to assist them with that? And especially within interpretate or interpretability of the information. Yeah, that, that would have been something great to evaluate. You know, the way that the study was set up was that, I mean, it was, it was, it was a lot. Like we, we would basically have parents coming in from the summer camp and we would, you know, go through the study with them, talk about it and see if we could get their consent. Um, and then after that, we would have to set up a time for them to, to come in and the parent had to sit down at our station and do the HLSI, the health literacy skills instrument, because that wasn't something that we could just email to them or, or do through Qualtrics. They had to sit at our station because, again, they had to like listen to recordings and watch videos. Um, and so they had to sit down. And then on another night, we'd have to come back and do their their child's assessment. Their child's assessment would always be not in the presence of their parent, not in the presence of like one of the, the staff at the, at the place. Like it'd be, it'd be in the same like room, basically. But we try to kind of strip strip everything away. So it's just the child, the Internet. And someone asking them to search for something, um, but I think it's a good point. It, it's almost like the it's almost like the spectrum of internal and external validity, right? Where like this was very much what do kids by themselves do in sort of a in, in sort of a clean environment versus like what do they actually do at home, right? Like if they're interested, do they do they ask their parents? Do they ask an adult, maybe not their parents? Uh, do they search and then ask their parents or do they ask their parents and then search? You know, mm -hmm. all that all that can kind of give us, I think, context about um, how to use this information. Yeah, and then my last question, um, and I'll make sure, okay. And um, so my last question was also like, about these websites, because of course we want kids to be going to reputable sources, but these like DACA websites are written for adults. And so- yeah. I'm also wondering about like, you know, the websites themselves might be the issue because like right. if 
they're searching for health information and even myplate.gov doesn't have like a child a website geared towards children, like how are we expecting them to be able to interpret this information? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you have the both sides, right? I mean, do we train children to navigate the internet or do we do we um, navigate the internet to <laughs> uh, customize the internet so the kid can, can can do it, right? So I think it's a great point. I I haven't had a chance to see what's been on anything new on my plate. I know when um, the first one came out. I say the first one, the um, my pyramid. I remember when my pyramid came out, they had a whole thing for kids. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure what my plate has done for kids, you know, yeah. like a website made for kids. I don't know what they've done. So, and I could be incorrect. At least my really quick search didn't generate anything. Yeah, it, it might be. <laughs> it might be. Yeah. yeah. So it might just be a harder to find or based on my search history. It, I'm yeah. obviously being um, geared to, or like, um, uh, yeah, it's taking me to like different, like more professional yeah. oriented, but well, yeah. thank but, you so, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, it's a great, maybe that's a, a great blind spot of the internet right now, especially in this area, right? What are the websites that we would want kids to visit for all this kind of information, so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much um, again for sharing your work. Um, it was a very interesting conversation. Um, and with that, I will hand it back to Rachel. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, just a reminder, there's a short survey when I close the webinar and then uh, watch for the email follow-up. It should reach you by Wednesday uh, with a link to the recording, the handout, as well as your CEU certificate. Um, and if that doesn't arrive from Zoom by the end of the week, just let us know and we're happy to forward that to you. Um, reminder, there's one more journal club session and we'll be back at our normal time at noon. Um, thankfully, Lexi's going to come back and moderate again for us next week. And then um, another reminder that conference registration um, is open. And today is the final day to receive the lowest registration rate. Um, and you do have the option to register and create an invoice, which locks in that low rate uh, that you can pay it, it, as you follow up closer to the conference. So if there's any questions, just reach out to the staff and we're happy to help facilitate you. Um, I think we were up to about 350 registrations when I started the webinar. So we'll see how many more have come in uh, since then. So um, look forward to seeing you back online or perhaps in person uh, in Washington, D.C. this summer. Thank you.